Build up that next time. Okay, so for today, what we're going to do is what we talked about last time doing, which was tefillah, yeah. right? So I think that's a good place to start and, uh, and uh, you know, build out from, from there. So last week, we sort of gave a general introduction to the approach to halakha and why it's important and, and to uh, and, and women and men. And the, uh, the general approach should always be taking the big picture viewpoint of, you know, the purpose is to come closer to Hashem and to, and to grow. And in all the areas that are really essential, like knowledge of Hashem and Ahavat Hashem and Yorat Hashem and Emunah and Bitachon and all the things that really are fundamental that the mitzvot are designed to instill in us, men and women are, are the same. In some details, in terms of obligation, women occasionally uh, have, you know, exemptions and the exemptions usually have to do with scheduling conflict if you really are realistic because, you know, it's mitzvot uh, man grama means a mitzvah, a positive mitzvah that is time bound, meaning something that there's a, there's a, there's a definite schedule associated with the mitzvah and therefore if someone's time is not their own for whatever reason, uh, in the, especially in the case of a, a mother or uh, somebody who's managing a household, their time is not their own. Same is true of somebody who's involved, as I mentioned, even a man who's involved in Tzorchei Tzibur. He has, you know, uh, communal obligations, communal responsibilities, the same, would also be exempt from any of these mitzvot because, uh, because the, the, their time is not their own, basically. So, uh, but ideally, a person should try to take advantage of every mitzvah opportunity that presents itself because the goal is not to find loopholes to be exempt from things or to, uh, or even just to technically satisfy whatever the requirements are. The goal is, of course, to have a meaningful religious life and come closer to Hashem uh, through doing the mitzvot. So that, that was basically what we talked about last time, very much in a nutshell, getting into tefillah. So the mitzvah of tefillah is a mitzvah, according to the Rambam, the mitzvah of tefillah is a mitzvah minatoah. It's one of the Tzariyag mitzvot. It's one of the 613 mitzvot, according to the Rambam. Not everybody agrees with that. The Ramban, for example, Nachmanides says that no, tefillah is only midrabanan. There's no actual mitzvah from the Torah of, uh, of uh, praying on a daily basis. He says, you know, maybe when in times of trouble, maybe in times of crisis, there's a mitzvah minatoah to do that. But in, in ordinary times, according to the Ramban, there's no specific mitzvah to pray every day. The Rambam, on the other hand, says, no, there is, and, uh, and counts it as one of the 613 mitzvot. Now, why is that important? It actually turns out that that's important for a reason you'd never think. Um, but uh, you'll see in a second why, why that would be important. So um, women are definitely obligated in tefillah, right? Just as a starting point. Women are obligated in tefillah. The Mishnah says in Masachet Vachot that Nashim Chayavot, that this is one of the things that women are obligated in is tefillah. The question becomes, what aspects of tefillah and to what and how many times and what format and so on and so forth. So if a person were to read what it says in the Talmud without any uh, preconceived notion, so it says women are exempt from Kriyat Shema. They're exempt from the Shema because the Shema is... Uh, is a It's a positive mitzvah that has a very specific time. It has to be done within the first few hours of the day, especially in the morning. And therefore, uh, and therefore women are exempt. But tefillah, they're obligated. Birkat Amazon, they're obligated. So the question about tefillah is, again, what, to what extent and what constitutes tefillah? So normally, whenever we talk in rabbinic literature, whenever you hear the word tefillah, what is it referring to? Specifically, to the Amidah. Specifically talking about the Amidah. Now the Rambam, again, here's where it becomes interesting whether you maintain 
that tefillah is a really a biblical commandment. It's minat Torah, or you say it's rabbinic. Because if you say it's a biblical commandment, so there's always two layers to, to, to the mitzvah. There's, what, there's the general idea of prayer, meaning that a person has to pray every day. The Rambam would say that, yeah, there's an idea of prayer. You have to praise God, you have to make requests, you have to thank God every day. But the exact words and the exact format, the Chachamim came and they, they established that. The Ramban, who says, no, the whole concept of, of a regular daily tefillah is all rabbinic. So he doesn't have to have two layers, like the biblical layer, which is the minimum that you need to do is to praise God and, and make a request and thank God. And then there's the rabbinic version of tefillah, which is the, the Shemona Esrei. He says, no, the whole thing is actually rabbinic. So the, from beginning to end, it's rabbinic. There's no two levels, deoraita derabanan. You have something like that in Kiddush. Let's say Kiddush of Shabbat. Kiddush of Shabbat is Deoraita. The nighttime Kiddush is Deoraita. Right now, the wording is not Deoraita. The wording is made by the rabbis. So in the beginning, people just used to say whatever they wanted for Kiddush of Shabbat. And then the rabbis standardized it. So the Rambam, Maimonides, would say that the same is true regarding Tefillah. That basically there's a, there's a general kind of idea of Tefillah to satisfy the obligation, biblical obligation. Once a day, say a very short thing. God is very great. Please give me a parnasah and thank you for everything that I have and you're done. That according to the Rambam would be enough. And the Chachamim came along and said, wait a second. It has to be a little more developed than that. It has to be more structured. We want everybody to pretty much be saying something similar. Not that, oh, my language skills are more limited, so I say less. You're more of a... Uh, uh, you're more of a uh, uh, well-spoken person, so you're going to say more. Or you have this amazing imagination and gift, and you're able to say this amazing, inspiring tefillah. And I'm going to say very, ba- you know, basic. So the rabbis made a, made it fixed, and they also said, let's make fixed times. The Beit Hamikdash has basically three times a day that service goes on, so we're going to make three times a day also that tefillah goes on. That's from the Chachamim. Okay, yes. What did you want? Do you have Where's your notebook? I know. I'm, I'm very. I'm very. I'm So according to the Rambam that, that he has this idea of there being A biblical level of tefillah and a rabbinic So he says you have to have three sections Praise, request, and thanks Now the, the request could be anything It could be please give me wisdom It could be please give me success Please give me courage to face my day It could be anything but it has to be in some way that you recognize that you're, you need God for, you know, uh, the, part of the idea of tefillah is to be aware of your dependence on Hashem. So you have to ask for something. But the Chachamim came along and said, look, let's analyze what should a person be asking for. Because maybe you don't even know. You know, you say, I didn't think that I should really ask for the Beit HaMikdash to be rebuilt every day. It wasn't on my radar. Or I didn't really think I should ask for David HaMelech to be the ruler of Israel. You know, that's uh, not him personally, meaning... The Davidic, you know, the, the uh, Mashiach or whatever, to be, to be the leader. I didn't really put that in my daily requests. You know, the average person, they might not think of that. So the, so, so the Chachamim made categories that a person should include. Okay, but really, hypothetically, according to the Torah, you just ask for whatever you want, and that would be enough. That's what the Rambam says. Ramban, again, he says, no, 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 there's no such thing as a tier one and tier two, that, you know, there's a biblical level and a rabbinic level. It's all one thing. The Chachamim made the whole concept of daily tefillah. There was no concept of daily tefillah, even though it says, like, like, for example, in the book of Daniel, that Daniel prayed three times a day. That was a practice that he had, but it wasn't because it was a, you know, a fixed, uh, established thing. 
according to the Ramban, it's all rabbinic. Now, why does that make a difference? So it makes a difference for one very curious reason. Because the, um, because a question came, comes up, like I mentioned, it says in the Mishnah that women are chayavot, they're obligated in tefillah. And we said tefillah usually is understood to mean the amidah. So the question is, how often are they obligated to say the amidah? How, with what frequency are they obligated to say it? Um, and so this, a simple reading, a simpleton who would read it like myself, I would say, oh, if it says women are obligated in something and we know what men are obligated in, then by saying women are obligated, it means the same thing. You know, like I would just simply make that conclusion. And for the most part, that does seem to be what everybody thought up to a certain point, which would mean something more than what most people think. Meaning, if you, if you read that without any preconceived notions and you read, let's say, all of the commentaries for the next thousand or 1500 years after the Gemara was finished, same thing. It just says women are obligated in tefillah. They never really get into this question of, oh, well, maybe women should say less tefillot than men or anything like that. That discussion doesn't really come up. It just says chayavot batfilah, uh, which means they're obligated in the tefillah. So, um, so a, what happened was that at a certain point, um, a, a, it really came out of the Ashkenazi world, to be honest, but um, that doesn't necessarily matter from our perspective. The question was framed in a certain way. The question was framed in the following way. They said, look, if really the, the Rambam is right, okay, and we always favor the Rambam, we love the Rambam. So if the Rambam is right and there's really a biblical level of tefillah and a rabbinic level of tefillah, that the biblical obligation was just once a day and the Chachamim came along and they added three times a day and they had this, maybe you could argue that according to the Rambam, you know, women being obligated in tefillah doesn't necessarily mean that they're obligated in all the things the rabbi said. Maybe they're just obligated in the Torah. The Torah says once a day. And that would leave with women only having to do it once a day. On the other hand, the Ramban and the, those who say that tefillah is totally rabbinic, it actually ends up becoming more strict because there's no two levels. Meaning if the, if the Gemara, if the Mishnah says women are obligated in tefillah, that means whatever the mitzvah of tefillah is. If the mitzvah of tefillah is a rabbinic mitzvah that is two times a day or three times a day, okay, so that would mean women are obligated in the same. So it comes out a very unusual thing that if you take the stricter position that, that really there's a mitzvah mina Torah, that there's a biblical mitzvah to pray every day, it turns out women will be obligated less, hypothetically, because you could say they're only obligated in the biblical frequency of tefillah. They don't have to do three times or two times, three times. On the other hand, if you say that tefillah is dirabanan, completely rabbinic, so then it actually comes out stricter. Because if you're saying they're obligated, then they have to be obligated in whatever there is, and whatever there is is just whatever the rabbis made, according to that, right? So this is how it was framed by some very famous rabbis, including somebody by the name of the Aruch HaShulchan, not Shulchan Aruch, Aruch HaShulchan, very famous, uh, living in the 1800s, okay? So um, a lot of the Sephardic rabbis took this distinction. They liked this distinction, including Harav Ovadia. He also took this distinction, adopted this distinction, and therefore came up with the lenient view that women only really should have to pray once a day because since we are all Rambamists, you know, we love the Rambam and the Rambam says that there's a Deoraita level of tefillah which is only once a day and only according to the rabbis it's three times a day or two, three times a day, 
we'll leave that vague for a second. We'll clarify that in a second, right? So therefore, women should only have to pray once a day. Um, that's the um, that is following that line of reasoning. Okay. Now, I don't. I'm just going to say something very controversial, but. Uh, Nobody will probably listen to this class except the people in our group, so I don't have to worry, right? <laughs> oh, um, I'm going to say something controversial. I don't really buy the distinction so much. I'm not convinced by it so much because if that were really a true distinction, why doesn't the Rambam himself ever say that? He doesn't say that, right? It sounds to me that what the Rambam says is that the Chachamim took this mitzvah and they structured it a certain way. They structured it to be a certain number of times a day. They structured it to be with a certain text that we use, the Amidah. Once you take away all the, what the Chachamim put into Tefillah, then okay, so maybe women should also just be able to say a two-line prayer and not have to say the Amidah. Maybe that for Birkat Amazon, they should only have to say uh, uh, three lines. They do have that uh, women's Birkat Amazon for the ladies that couldn't read so well. Um, but like they, they, you know, they, you'll start coming up with maybe for kiddush they should just be able to say, "I love Shabbat. It's a great day. Hand me the food." <laughs> you know, where you start chopping things up and saying, "Well, the Chachamim made this part, and this is the biblical part, so we'll just go with the biblical part." We don't. It becomes a little bit of a, uh, you know, it's it doesn't resonate with me. I'm not really convinced by it. I'm just putting that out there. I'm not saying anything what you should or shouldn't do. I'm just saying I'm not so convinced by it. I tend to think that the Rambam and the Ramban didn't really disagree about that. And probably they both thought that men and women are equal, equally have to pray all the tefillot. Now Arvit, Arvit, you could argue because Arvit, that's why it keeps saying two or three times because Arvit, even for men, was actually voluntary in the olden days, Okay. In the times of the Talmud and for many generations after that, or I would say until, the, until later in the times of the Gemara, let's say within the period of the Talmud, but in the early days of the Talmud, it was considered tefillat arvit roshut, which means tefillat arvit is optional. Later on in the Gemara times, it said they already accepted upon themselves to do it regularly, so it became like a minhag. But really, technically, it's a custom to pray arvit. Um, so, so you could say that, okay, maybe women, they didn't really ex- go that far. They didn't accept a custom to pray Arvit, just the, the, the way the men did, but shacharit and mincha, it's more debatable. That's why you'll find like a lot of Ashkenazi girls and women, they pray shacharit and mincha. The Mishnah Barah says shacharit and mincha. You could understand why they wouldn't do Arvit because that was based on a minhag, even for men. But shacharit and mincha, they're doing it based on what I'm telling you, which is that they said, look, once they say that women are chayavot, in tefillah, that means they're chayavot in tefillah, the same as men, okay? And they don't, in, they don't take this distinction of, oh, biblical level, so they only have to do one time. They say, look, once the chachamim established a certain text and they established a certain frequency of tefillah, when they say obligated, they mean obligated in the whole thing. Like when you say obligated in Megillat Esther, you don't only come one time, you come to both, right? I'm just giving an example. Yeah. Did, did you have your hand? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it always like confuses me because Tefillah is time bound, right? Like there's a time for Shachar, there's a time for Mecha. Right. So before this, between this, so I don't get how on one hand we're obligated in Tefillah to potentially the same way that men are, but at the same time we're not obligated in anything time bound, which was kind of with that. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's kind of a, the whole time bound thing is kind of like 
a little bit overblown because if you actually find the number of mitzvah that you're exempt from under the time-bound mitzvah thing, it's like there's wow. like it's only a few. It's like sukan lulav shofar, which most women do anyway. Technically, they're not obligated, but they do anyway, right? Shofar and sukkah and lulav, tefillin and tzitzit and kriyat shema. But it's not, but it's what else is there? The thing, like- There's a lot of exceptions. Like matzah, you're really exempt, but you're not exempt because since once you're already in the, uh, once you're already, that you don't eat chametz, so you have to also eat matzah. Uh, what about kiddush of Leil Shabbat? That's also, oh yeah, but once you're already obligated in not doing melachan Shabbat, you're also obligated to do the kiddush. So what about, so what about Megillah? That's very time bound. You have to do the, Oh yeah, but the, since, it's, uh, since that's a, uh, a mitzvah of uh, Pirsum Anes, uh, and, and the women also were saved by the Nes. Uh, what about Chanukah? That's time bound. No, no, no. That's also again Pirsum Anes. There's a lot of exceptions. They came up with a lot of exceptions to the rule. So the uh, so the mitzvot says are actually pretty limited. The number, the ones that they're exempt from. Now tefillah, you could make an argument that you, they, they, you would have an exemption. Why don't you have that argument? Because um, because really, in theory, and this goes back to like what the Rambam says. The Rambam says basically, if you pray at any time, once a day, that's it. So there, it isn't really time-bound. It's time-bound in the sense that the Chachamim said there are time, that, that if you pray up till midday, it's called Shacharit. If you pray from 12.30 to sundown, it's called Minchan. If you pray after that, it's called Arvit. But basically, there's a half an hour in the day that you can't pray, which is like from 12 to 12.30 on the Halachic clock, right? Like even if you did, right, right, like even if you did, like the Diavad, it counts for Mincha, right? So, so like really there's no time of the day that you can't pray something, pretty much, right? So it's not really, really time bound. So the, the time boundness of it is, it comes from the rabbinic enactment of the fixed tefillot. Yeah, so that's why, that's why you're still obligated in it, in tefillah. But it's a good question, and the Gemara actually raises the question. It says, well, why would you think... Uh, you know, why would you think that women would not be obligated? Oh, because it seems like a, seems like a time-bound, positive time-bound mitzvah. Yeah. And so, sorry, just to clarify, so I know for myself, if I, let's say, want to try to find the time to pray in a day, but I'm obligated to pray at least once a day, should I be really paying attention to, like, oh, did I miss, you know, saying Shema? Did I, is, it t- is it time for Minchah? Or, like, if I can pray? Pretty much any time you say an Amidah, you're doing, any, you're doing. Yeah, any time I can just say You're going to be good. I mean, it's, there's really not any time that you can't say the Amidah. Ideally, I guess from 12 to, on the halachic clock, like now it's like from 1 to one thirty or whatever, it's like in the limbo period where you're not really supposed to say Shachrit, now they're supposed to say Mincha, but even if you did, like the whole reason why they made that extra half hour, the, the reason why B'diavad it's okay, meaning after the fact if somebody prayed during that time it's okay, is because the whole reason why they had that was because they couldn't really tell for sure when it was already afternoon because they were going by the sun. So they had to wait till they saw you know, when the sun is directly overhead is what's called chatzot, that's a midday. And then when you start to see the shadow move a little bit, then you're already into what's called afternoon. We, we now know exactly when the sun is directly overhead based on a digital, uh, digital uh, calculation. They didn't have that. So that's why they waited until the shadow moved a little bit to be able to see that, you know, once it's creating a shadow, that means there's an angle, right? So that's why they... Um, that's why they, they did that, but technically it doesn't really apply. That's why, you know, there's, there's some leniency with regard also to... the Twilight Zone? What, what about that? That, like, you're not allowed to eat or something, so that shouldn't she at that time, or... Like, if someone is... Between, born, like, sunset and Seda yeah. Right, but even then, technically, you could do Arvid. Yeah. Technically, you could do Arvid at that time. 
Yeah. Like if someone's Hebrew, like someone's birthday falls right. on that time. Because we're not sure if it's the, right, because we're not exactly sure. But for Arvit, you'd be allowed to pray Arvit. You would, after sunset. So technically, there's never really a time you can't pray anything. So that's why it's not really a time bound, hypothetically. So in the, um, so this is the difference between the Ashkenazi and the Sephardic practice that you'll notice that a lot of Ashkenazi women who are religious will pray two times a day, you know, very careful about praying Shacharit and Mincha. Um, they're basing themselves on this idea that women are obligated in Tefillah, except for Arvid, because Arvid is anyway a Minhag. And then, uh, and the Sephardic ladies are following, like where Ovadia said that he was, he was basing himself on this distinction that, well, they're obligated, but the obligation biblically is only once a day, so we don't have to require them to do more than once a day, and that's the leniency. Now, he's not saying you can't pray more than once a day. He's not saying you can't pray uh, three times a day. If you want, um, you could. He's just telling you that he thought that you could rely on this idea of only once a day, um, and he recommends always shacharit, because to start the day, it's better. Say at least, you know, if you could say the beginning of the Shema or whatever, he, he recommends that, but... Um, but hypothetically, once a day would be good enough. And as I said, I'm skeptical about the whole distinction, but I'm not, you know, I'm not going to put my head into that type of, dis- you know, argument. So the, that's, the, um, that's the main obligation of tefillah. What about all the other stuff? Like there's a lot of stuff besides that, uh, you know, in the Sidur, as everyone knows. You have your Birchot HaShachar, you have your Psuke uh, Zimra, you have your Kriyat Let's say a person, like, let's say you come to shul. So you come to Kanisan, you're praying like together with the, uh, with the, uh, you know, the rest of the group and you're starting on time and you want to, uh, where do you start? So, Bichot HaShachar, everyone's also obligated in, okay? So even though it's not really technically part of Tefillah, really everyone is supposed to say the Bichot HaShachar. And, you know, starting from the Mode Ani and then Ashir and Elokai, you know, all of that and all of the Bechot HaShachar and even Bechot HaToah, everyone is supposed to say that. Okay, because these are obligations that are not, they're not really tefillah, they're really thanksgiving Bechot. Right, each one of these Bechot is thanking God for some blessing in your life. Like, thank you for restoring my Neshama every day. Thank you for Pokech Ivrim opening my eyes. Thank you, Matir Asurim, for that I could sit up in my bed. Not everybody can do that. Not everybody can stand up. Okay, fulfill. You know, all of these different brachot you're saying are really thank you brachot for the daily blessings. And, uh, and that's, the, that's why everyone's obligated in them. Brachot HaToah is an interesting discussion because some people say, because Shukhan Aruch says that women have to say Brachot HaToah. So a lot of people said, well, why? You know, women are not obligated in learning Torah, so why, are they, uh, why do they have to say Brachot HaToah? And so the standard answer that is given to that is that it's true that they're not obligated to learn for the sake of fulfilling the mitzvah of learning Torah, but they're obligated to learn the halachot that apply to them. They're obligated to learn, like we said last time also, they're obligated to learn in order to appreciate Hashem and appreciate the chokhmah of Hashem, the wisdom of Hashem and the Torah. They are. They're just not obligated in the formal structure of learning Torah, but they're still obligated. So therefore you say the bachot, what are the bachot of Torah? There's three bachot. One is on the commandment of learning Torah. One is on... Uh, asking Hashem to make the Torah sweet, and one is thanking Hashem for giving you the Torah. So everyone is obligated in that too. So all those Bechot HaShachar, we're all obligated in, okay? Now, um, if you, uh, it was very funny, Bechot HaShachar was in the news today, because, well, it was in the small world of social media of Jewish-Israeli things, <laughs> which is a very, very small world. But you probably heard that uh, Israel won like third place in Eurovision, okay. So, so it turned out 
Noah Kirel, who's the singer who won. Okay, so on her on her flight back to Israel, she was sitting next to Harav Rimon. Harav Rimon is like a pretty well-known rabbi in Israel, like the rabbi of Gush Etzion. He writes a lot of halacha. He's written like a ton, ton of halacha books. I, I don't know if he speaks English, but I, I guess he must because his books come out in Hebrew and in English. And he, like, he was giving like a lecture tour in England, so I suppose he speaks English. I, I've never actually spoken to him, but I think he speaks English and Hebrew both. So anyway, he was talking. To, he's sitting next to her on the plane and he didn't know who she was. And he was sit, and they had like all these things saying, "We're very proud of you, Noah." Everywhere on the on the plane, because it was a plane going back to Israel, and she was on it. And I guess they were both sitting in business class. This rabbi knows how to fly. He flies business. It's pretty good, you know. So he's flying, and he so he asked her because she was in the seat next to him. Do you know what this thing is? With it? he didn't know who she was. Like, what is this thing? We're proud of you, Noah. What is? Who is this person they're talking about? He doesn't know, and she's like. She said, it's me. He's like, oh, what did you do that they're so proud of you? <laughs> he didn't know, right? So she told him what happened. And then she said, and then it turns out, he's like, oh, she asked him who he was. And he said, oh, I'm the rabbi of Gush Etzion, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And she, her, she and her mom, I guess, you know, because what Jewish girl travels anywhere without her mom? Obviously, you know, her mom had to be there. Said, oh, you know, her grandfather was a rabbi and a sofer stam, and he was this and he was that. Like, apparently she comes from, at least on one side of her family, religious background and so he so she said yeah the morning that my, my performance like I said and I didn't touch my phone on Shabbat you know she was like respecting Shabbat and she was said the and it was funny because it said specifically she said I said before I did my you know before I went for my performance so you know it was in the it, it was in the news yeah so um so she brought, I guess she brought her sidur or she used the phone. Got it Nowadays, nobody needs a sidur. You have everything on you. Unless it's Shabbat, everyone has their, their phone. Anyway, I thought it was funny that, uh, that she mentioned that. Now, the, um, it was just an interesting situation because he, then they took a selfie together because you have to take a selfie. And they're both celebrities. Like he's very well known like in the religious world and she's very well known in the secular world. But it's like he, they didn't know who the other one was. And then there's like a subsection of the public that knows who both of them are. You know, like who would know both of them and recognize both of them. So it's funny, but it would be like, I don't know, if like a rabbi, an American rabbi was sitting next to like Beyonce or something. Then he doesn't know who it is because it's not on his radar. I'm, uh, Beyonce might be old now for Noah Kira. I don't know who's a young singer now. I don't know. But uh, it's, it was a funny story. In any case... Um, uh, so they are, women are obligated in for sure everybody agrees on that and, and really anything in the preliminary section of the tefillah they, there's no problem with saying it most of what's in the preliminary section of the tefillah is not bechot not anything that oh if you said it you, you have a problem right like oh I wasn't supposed to say that now then we come up to an interesting issue which is psuke de zimra psuke de zimra is starts from baruch shemar and goes to yishtabach Right? And in the middle, uh, so, 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 is a sandwich. It has a bachan the beginning, bachan the end, and mizmorim from tehillim, mostly from tehillim, with some other things too, in between. Okay? To make a sandwich of, of the bachot, you know, in between the two bachot. 
It's, and, and the Gemara calls it Halel. It says that, it says, I, I, I want to be a person who says Halel every day. So the Gemara says, how could you say that you want to say Halel every day? You're not supposed to say Halel every day, only on special days. He said, no, 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 I meant Suket Zimra. Suket Zimra is a great Zechut to say it every day because it's like a Halel, not about miracles, but about what Hashem's blessings every day. Like if it has Ashrei, it has, it has all, all the Mizmorim that you find in Psukei uh, Zimra are like a halil of the everyday, meaning it's seeing the gifts and the blessings of Hashem in the everyday, not not looking for the extraordinary. Halil is about miracles and all of the salvation that Hashem has done for us, and that's why we only say it on Pesach and Shavuot and special times. The Psukei Zimra is the daily kind of a halil. Okay, so the issue comes up: Can ladies say? The brachot. Everybody agrees that they could say the mizmor. You could say tehillim all day long if you want. There's nothing wrong with saying tehillim. Except on Tisha B'Av. Right? Any, any other day. You could say tehillim all day long. But Baruch Shemar Nishtabach, since the women are not obligated, there's a big debate. There was a big argument, actually. That, and the other big argument was regarding Birchot Kriyat Shema. So let's say you're in this, you come to the synagogue on time, which I know that for the ladies that have babies, like that's a rarity probably, but like if you're in the, the, when you were able to, or if you're able to, so you come and they're up to Baruch Hashem and then they start the Baruchot of the Kriyat Shema. Now on Shabbat, it's longer. You have like El Adon that everybody sings, Ahavat Olam, and then you get to the Shema. And then after that, there's a Bachav Ga'ali Yisrael, this long Bachav Ga'ali Yisrael, and the Amidah. Okay? Everyone knows this, even though a lot of times probably, you know, when you're running late, you, you, you skip right into the Amidah nowadays. But if you're, if you're on time, you're able to, to catch the whole thing. <clears throat> now, what, happened, what about those Bachot? Since those Bachot are related to Kriyat Shema, and we know that women are not obligated in Kriyat Shema, so can they say those Bachot of the Baruch Hashem, Yotzer Ovo, Echoshech, Ose Shalom, Voetokol, until Baruch Hashem, uh, uh, and then are they allowed to say it? Because it's and then Gali Israel because they're not really obligated in the mitzvah of Shaman. Since those bachot are part of the mitzvah of Shaman, are they allowed to say them? So this was a big debate. Okay, big debate. Haravovadia was very staunchly against women saying these bachot. That's why if you get a sidur lebat Yisrael. If you get the women's sidur of Avadi, it's like this big. It's, it looks like a birchon. Okay? Why? Because it takes out psuke de zimra, it takes out the bachot of kriyat shema before and after, it takes out a lot of things. Okay? Only, you could say the shema, but not the bachot, or you could say, maybe you could say the bachot without the name of Hashem, but he doesn't even, I don't think he even has that. He just has the Kriyat Shema and the Amidai doesn't have the Bachot before Baruch Hashem or Avat Olam or anything like that. And this was a huge debate. And if you look at his responsa, like his Shelot and Chuvot, back and forth with different rabbis arguing back to him, his arguments back to them, and they're going, it was really like a hot topic. Sephardic rabbis I'm talking about. So for other big Sephardic rabbis. At, during his time, even though he kind of eclipsed everybody, during his time there were other very big Sephardic rabbis who went toe-to-toe with Harav Ovadia. Maybe Harav Ovadia, you know, people say, oh, they weren't on his level or they, there's that. But they, they were capable of, you know, debating back and forth. And in particular, because Harav Ovadia really wanted to um, homogenize Sephardic Judaism and get everybody into the same minhagim and everybody into the same practices. So 
uh, he fought a lot with especially Moroccan rabbis because um, Moroccan rabbis had very different minhagim than a lot of the Middle Eastern, because they weren't Middle Eastern, right? So they, they were North African. So they had like their own very definite minhagim that they came with. And they also had big rabbis. And so they fought with Haravavadia quite a lot to try to keep their minhagim and for him not to like steamroll over their minhagim with mixed success. Um, there are still like strongholds of the Moroccan uh, pl- places where they keep the Moroccan minhagim despite Haravavadia, even in Israel, there are. There are places that have like surrendered and t- t- taken Haravavadia's uh, positions to the point that if you get a sidur from if you get a Moroccan Sidur in Israel, I saw this with my own eyes, okay? Obviously, whenever you publish a book, you want to get approbations, you know, approval, like what's called the Haskamah in Hebrew, for your work. So who do you go to? The biggest rabbis. So when they go to, they would go to Rav Amar at the time, before Rav Avadia's son took over, they went to Rav Amar. Rav Amar was Moroccan himself. <laughs> they would go and show him the, uh, the Sidur, and the Sidur has these different minhagib, that are not consistent with Rav Ovadia said. And Rav Amar is a company man and a student of Rav Ovadia. He's not going to go against him. So he said, look, you can publish the Sidur, but in his Haskamah that he wrote, he writes, this is a wonderful Sidur, except on page 40, whatever. You know, he will like say in the introduction, da, 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 this is not what we should be doing, but this is what they used to do in the old country. But now that we came to Israel, we don't do this anymore. The, the big fight was over saying, and it's in the Mashadi community too, over saying, Abacha an Halel Rosh Chodesh. Major argument between pretty much every... The truth is that Moroccan Jews and Persian Jews and Spanish Portuguese Jews, all of these Sephardic Jews had a tradition of saying the Bacha Likroet Halel on Halel Rosh Chodesh, but it's against the Shulchan Aruch. So along came Rav Avadi and he's like, we all need to get on the same page and stop this, you know, uh, stop this, uh, this practice. So basically they came up with this compromise that you can print this Sidur, but you have to write, in the diaspora, the custom was to say this, but we don't say it. You could put the Bacha in there, but you have to say not to say it. <laughs> and that's, that, that's what they did. It doesn't, even, doesn't make that much sense. But I, I spoke to the person who made the Koran Sephardic Sidur, which is, a very nice Sidur, the Hebrew one. I, he, he did only the Hebrew one. I, I don't know about the English one. But he, um, is there an English one? I, I assume by now, I'm not sure. But they, this, uh, the, I spoke to the guy who made it and he said, yeah, this is what Rav Amar said. We have to write in the instructions. We can put the Racha, but we have to write in the instructions. This is what they used to do in the olden days. We're just putting it in here for posterity, but actually don't say it. Okay? So that's, that was the requirement. So this is the kind of like, push that was made, or like, I'll give you another good example, saying the Shabbat after the lighting of the candles versus before. This was another thing that Harav Ovadia really battled with against pretty much all the Sephardic Jews, the Persian Jews, everyone who followed Ben Ishchai. So even the Middle Eastern Jews were saying it that way because Ben Ishchai said, okay? So, and the Ben Ishchai, before the Rav Ovadia came along, the Ben Ishchai was the Rav Ovadia of every Sephardic Jew. What happened was that most of the, the Jews, uh, my own totally not real systematic research and not, you know, this is based on my own top of my head impression, 
no real actual basis for this. So don't like say, well, the, you know, the research, not research, just telling you what I think. The Jews that came from Iran and they came from Iraq, they, when they came to Israel, they didn't have big rabbis. Rabbi Vadia was the big rabbi for the Iraqis and the, and the Persians, they didn't really have big rabbis. So when Rabbi Vadia started, Rabbi Vadia became famous because he started teaching Ben Ishchai and saying, this is what the Ben Ishchai says and he's wrong. And this is the reason why. And they're like, how is this young guy coming and talking about Ben Ishchai? Who does he think he is? Is this person is nobody? And they got really mad and they went to his teacher and the teacher defended him and said, no, he's right. What he's saying is right. Let him keep teaching. He started by teaching Persians. That's what Ovadia became famous, teaching Persians from Yazd, actually. There, and, and he was like, he was teaching them why the Ben Ishchai was wrong about everything. And that would be like somebody today sitting with Robovadia's book and saying, this is why Robovadia was wrong. Like, he'd be like, what? what are you saying? Who do you think you are, right? But at the end of the day, the Persians and even the Iraqis, they didn't have such, you know, so many big rabbis coming from the old country with them. They once did, but, you know, not at that time. So they went along with it. But the Moroccan rabbis came with their big rabbis who were like, who is this rabbi to tell us what to do? He's not just talking to our flock. He's talking to us and telling us that we're wrong. So these rabbis were like, that we're not just going to bow down and take it. We're going to stand up for our minhagim. So Rav Meshash was the chief rabbi of Yerushalayim and that whole family and a, and a lot of other Sephardic, a lot of other Moroccan rabbis especially because Morocco had a lot of chachamim, a lot of big rabbis, battled against the Rav to try to keep their minhagim. And one of the things that was battled back and forth was this issue of can women say, can women say uh, uh, the what was the argument? So Rav Ovadia said, look, in general, what do we say? We say if a woman's not obligated in something, like they're not obligated in shaking a lulav, so they shouldn't say the, the bachan the lulav. They're not obligated in sitting sukkah. They shouldn't say, they can do the mitzvah, but they shouldn't say the bachan. Right, that's the general approach. And so here, they're doing the mitzvah of Kriyat Shema, but they're not obligated, they shouldn't say the Wacha. Makes sense, right? The only thing was that the, that the response was, that's true when the Wacha is, Asher kidishanu vitzivanu this. Because the Wacha is, Hashem, you commanded me to do this. But if he didn't actually command you, how could you say that? If you're doing it out of your own free will because you want to. Hashem didn't command you. So how can you say a bacha that says asher kiddishanu b'mitzvotav? We understand. They shouldn't say it. But Baruch Shemar doesn't say asher kiddishanu b'mitzvotav v'tzivanu. It just says we're praising Hashem using the words of David HaMelech and we want to praise Hashem. And the b'chot kriyat shema don't say a thing asher kiddishanu. It's just a ble- Basically these b'chot expand on the theme of kriyat shema. Kriyat shema says Hashem is one and the first Bachav, the Kriyat Shema, talks about Hashem created the world. And the, sec- and, the, and the Kriyat Shema says Hashem is Elokeinu, He's our God. And the second Bachav talks about how Hashem gave us the Torah and He gave us the mitzvot and all of that. And the end of the Kriyat Shema talks about Hashem took us out of Egypt. And the last Bachav, Kriyat Shema, is about Yitziat Mitzrayim. It doesn't say Asher Kiddishanu. So what's the problem with women saying it? It's not, they're not saying a Bachav saying that Hashem commanded them. They're just saying, they're doing the mitzvah in its full form. The full form of the mitzvah is to do it with these Bachot before and after. What's the problem? That was the argument back against the Ravavadya. But they went back and forth and he argued back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And uh, in the end, I mean, you know, obviously nobody like wins, but you know, for, most of, for the most part, people went along with what Ravavadya said. Because he was this huge, you know, huge rabbi and with huge influence. And so everybody kind of like went along with that. <clears throat> but, 
there is a, a very strong, uh, uh, you know, argument to be made for the other side, even for Sephardic women. I'm not talking about for Ashkenazi women. And it turns out that Rabbi Ben Chaim agreed with that side too. He's like, yeah, I don't know what Rabbi, why Rabbi Vadia said that they can't say those bachot. They should be able to say those bachot. So if a woman wanted to, according to Rabbi Ben Chaim, I mean, I, I heard this from a couple of years ago, assuming he hasn't changed his mind since. I doubt it that he would. So then it would be okay for them to say those bachot, not the asher kiddishanu b'mitzvotav, the other ones. Because they don't, they're not connected to whether you're obligated or not. You're just doing psukei de with the bacha, nothing to do with being obligated in it or not. In fact, psukei de you're not really, ob- even a man is not really obligated, it's considered an enhancement of the prayer to do it. So, you know, so it, it seems like you would be allowed to do it according to Avadiyah, I mean, according to Rabbi Ben Chaim. In, um, in, even though he acknowledged Ravavadia's position, but he didn't agree with it. And, 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 you know, he's basically taking the side of the people who are arguing against Ravavadia that, 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 that it would be okay. Um, when I was teaching in Eshel, I had to teach Ravavadia only, you know. Yeah, because that, that was the official position. So they told me, you know, you have to teach, you know, you have to teach according to our official position as we follow Ravavadia, which was fine. I taught that. But um, to the Mashadi girls, like I would say to them, you know, after that, you know, Rabbi Chaim said that that's okay, <laughs> and then uh, and then like and then and then when I taught in Harova the Sephardic halacha, I was able to teach whatever I wanted because those Ashkenazi rabbis they don't know the difference anyway. You know? <laughs> so I just taught them, but I taught them both sides, and then I said, this is you know, some say that you're allowed to, some say not, and they're both, you know, they both have sources and a basis and. And that's all. But uh, that, that's it. So, I mean, that's in terms of tefillah. The other thing was like, in his early years, Rav Ovadia was said, women can pray all the tefillah that they want. In his later years, he came and said, well, Musaf, maybe they shouldn't pray. Right? It was, that was a later thing. In, in the early years, I, I, he didn't say that. If you look at his earlier works, I don't remember ever seeing that. But then later on, he said, well, Musaf is different because all the other tefillot are part of the regular schedule of tefillah, but Musaf is different. But I don't think that we have any objection to ladies saying Musaf. I never heard that in our community, anybody having an objection to it. And really all the tefillot should be considered the same. Um, you know, it, it, any tefillah that you want to do, you should be able to do. And, you know, I think ideally you should try to do as many of the tefillot as you can, you know, with the time that you have. There's no reason not to. Doesn't hurt. There's a statement in the Gemara that says, it would be great if a person could pray all day long. It's the best thing to do. Not literally that you do that, but meaning it's ideal for a person to be in that state of mind of uh, standing before Hashem as much as possible. What's, what's, to, what's to lose? So even though, uh, even though Aravavadya at some point sort of like wasn't sure if Musaf would be counted in that, I think that most of the authorities do agree that Musaf together with all the other tefillot is still under the mitzvah tefillah. And uh, men and women should both equally be able to do it or should, should be, you know, should, should do it if they can, you know. If you're going with the one tefillah a day rule, so you don't have to, uh, you, you know, then, then anyway, it wouldn't even be an issue. But if you're trying to do all the tefillah that you can on a given day or you're, in, you're there on Shabbat or you're there on Chagim, you know, to say that to, to the Musaf is good too. And I think that's the common practice in our community. I never heard anybody raise any objection to women saying Musaf in our community, did, did we? I've never heard that. But, I, but I, I remember one time I was in a community and a guy came, this was 20 years ago or so, not recently, more than 20 years ago. And I, a guy got up and, and, and said that, that you know women, they shouldn't say the Musaf and the women really got upset. He got a lot of flack. 
I think that was the last time that guy ever said a halakha in that synagogue. His career was cut short. Yeah. Anyway, any questions or anything like that? Yes. So if I were to say Musaf, let's say I was Musaf or something, would that count as my one? It counts, for sure. It counts, but I think if you're going to say, if you're, st- if you're still in the morning, it'd be better to do shacharit. If you're already like past that, then musaf or mincha would be the same. Yeah. But if you're, if you're already in the morning, you might as well say shacharit rather than musaf. Um, so for my first, like, the first time that I got up to is like at night, let's say I want to say Arabic, do I have to say before shacharit? If I didn't say before, do I have to say at night? The whole day you didn't say, you, yeah, you just woke up? No. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> oh. I'm trying to imagine a situation where that would be. <laughs> you just didn't have a chance all day to say it. You're saying, and now you're coming to pray. Now, yeah, you say it all day long. You could say, There's no time limit. No, it's like uh, after midnight, it renews. Like if you, you should try to say your before you eat. I don't know that there's like a, an absolute rule about it. I mean, it's, this is something that ideally a person, there is an idea that a person's not supposed to eat before they pray. Mm-hmm. But I'm not sure that that, w- that applies, strictly speaking, to if a woman, let's say, prays mincha every day because she can't, you know, pray shacharit in the morning, so then she's going to have to fast every single day till afternoon in order, to, in order to eat. I don't think that seems like a reasonable, a reasonable situation. But if you're going to pray in the morning... And you know you're going to pray in the morning. It's definitely better prioritizing to pray shacharit uh, before you before you eat. Actually, this was a story that my daughter, when she was in school, I don't want to say what school on the recording, you know, when she was here, and she like argued. They they had a thing that the girls would have breakfast before tefillah and the boys would have breakfast after tefillah. And my daughter was very upset about that. And she went and argued with the principal and said, "If I'm praying shacharit, why should I eat before I pray shacharit? I should eat after I pray shacharit." She never wanted to eat before she prayed, and so they made an exception for her and let her like eat her breakfast during class after shacharit because she didn't want. She was like very militant about that. About that, I think that's that's pro- that she was probably right. I think she was probably right that uh, it's better to do it that way. Yeah. Um, so I wasn't going to argue with her otherwise, that's for sure. So if you're going to have a, specific, a very limited time to pray as a woman, which tefillah do you suggest to pray? The most important thing is berchot shachar for sure and amida. Those, those are the key things if you're talking about minimum, minimum. Yeah, if you can do the shema, if you can do the shema, that's good too. The Shema is, is important. But you said that was Yeah, you're not obligated. The, the thing that's obligated is Berchot HaShachar and Amidah. Okay. Right? Men have an additional obligation, obligation of Kriyat Shema, and therefore they do the Berchot of the Kriyat Shema also, so it's a little bit of a bigger, another five minutes uh, extra piece. Everything else beyond that is extra. Even the Psukit Zimra. If a guy is running late and he comes to Shul and they pass and they're up to Baruch he skips that also. Meaning he, it's not ob- obligatory on the same level. It's ideal to do it. So if you can also do the Psukhet Zimra, that's terrific. I mean, the more you can, the more you can, all of those, all of the components of the tefillah prior to the Amidah are really meant to basically put you into the right frame of mind to be able to have the best Amidah. So it's, you know, the more you can do, the better. The more you can like warm yourself up spiritually for the Amidah, the better, better off you are, you know.
Yeah. Right? For sure. And what if, like, this happens? Everyone has to do Nitzayi Daim in the morning. That's part of B'chod HaShachar for sure. And everyone should wash before they pray too. It's part of Hilchot Tefillah. If you never wash Nitilat Yadayim with the Racha up till then? Yeah. So you have two options, basically. One option, there's two different takes on it. One option is when you first wake up to do it with a Racha. And then later when you come to pray, do it without a Racha. Other people say when you first wake up, do it without a Racha, like what you're doing. And then assuming you've gone to the bathroom in between, you've done other things that would require you to for sure wash, so then you do Nitilat Yadayim when you do it before the tefillah. Okay. Both options are legitimate. There's like the two different ways of doing it. Because a lot of times I'll like have my only like three moments of really saying the Quran Shachar will be like in the car dropping my kids off to school or something. Right. Like, then you do it after. Yes, so do it after. Um, you're not supposed to pray when you're holding a baby. What? Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. It's, one of, it's, it's, it's not a well-known halakha, but it's like a very explicit halakha that you're not supposed to. Because you not have full kavanah. Because you're like watching the baby. You don't want the baby. Yeah. That's true, too. There's a, good, there's, a good, there's, a good, there's a good argument to be made that you can never pray for the entire 18 years from when you have a child until you, uh, you know, because uh, you can never really actually feel, feel focused. But yeah, you have to try to have someone hold the baby during that time if you can. Okay. Or when they nap. Yeah, you're, you don't have to pray. Yeah, if you have no way to pray without the holding baby, you don't have to pray. Than better than to pray with a little bit less kavana. Yeah, yeah. You shouldn't. You should just wait till uh, till you have time. Yes. Also, two questions. Um, the first one is: so, if we're listening to Rabbi Ben Chaim and Ben Ishchai, and we're not following Rabbi Vadia, isn't that going against what Rabbi Vadia is trying to do by instilling one Sephardi custom for women and? And just following all of his hilchot for Sfaradim, like why are we even following them if we're not going to listen? We're going to listen to Rabbi Well, we don't have a pope in Judaism. Like just because Rabbi wanted to do that doesn't necessarily mean everyone wants to do that, and you have to do that. If you agree with that that idea that we should all have the same practices in minhagim, then you should follow that system. But not everyone is going to necessarily believe in that concept because. I think, you know, part of what made Judaism dynamic and exciting is that we have different minhagim and different perspectives and different opinions. And we don't just have one rabbi that like, whatever that rabbi said, you know, like we, we decided not to follow everything that Ben Ishchai said. He was like the Rehovadiah of his time. So in every generation, you have a rabbi like that, that's sort of this larger than life rabbi, but then you always have like points of disagreement and different, different viewpoints. The general, generally he succeeded in like restoring a sense of unity to the Svaradim, but I think that even within that, you can still have differences of, 
you know, custom here and there, and it doesn't really take away from it. I feel like even the people who have like certain areas that they don't follow Ravadia in the big picture, they are uni- they feel unified with others Faradim because of what he did. I don't think it really takes away from what he did to have the different minhagim. It's not my impression, at least. One more question. Sorry. Um, talking about the time bell mitzvot again, how come we have exceptions for, like, let's say, Kiddush? And what was, you were giving a few other examples. Matzah. Um, yeah, but not exceptions for shaking the blood and sitting in the sukkah. Like, sukkah well, if everything's an exception, then uh, you have no rule. So how did, who chose, like, which ones will make exceptions for and which ones not? When, you could technically also make an exception for sitting in sukkah. Like, why? Women also sat in the sukkah and went back. That's, yeah, actually, that is a, that exact question that you just asked, did you hear what, her, what Rachel's question was? That exact question is asked by the Tosafot in the Gemara. He says, how come Chanukah and Megillah, we say, they were, in the, they were in the miracle, so therefore they, they're included in the mitzvah. But with Sukkah, we don't say, we don't say that principle. It's the same thing, it's exactly that question. The answer that they give is, um, there's two answers to it. The answer that they give is that is for derabanan, mitzvot derabanan. Meaning, the Doraita rule is that women would be exempt from mitzvot asesha grama, but when the rabbis made a mitzvah pirsumanes, they included everybody, because it's a, it's a mitzvah midrabanan. That's, what, that's the answer that they give. But there's another simpler answer. It's related, but a little bit simpler, which is that when it comes to a mitzvah like Megillah and, and, and Hanukkah, we know what the purpose of the mitzvah is. It's to remember the miracle. It's the purpose is Pirsum Hanes. So the rabbi said, since they were involved in the Nes, they should also do it. When it comes to Sukkah, the, the Torah says that the reason for the mitzvah is because we sat in Sukkot, but it doesn't say the purpose is to publicize the miracle. It's a different, you know, that's making an assumption about the purpose of the mitzvah. But either way, the basic answer is that the Torah doesn't have that rule of whoever's included in the miracle will be included in the mitzvah. That's something that the Chachamim use for their mitzvah. But it's a good question. And it's good for, you know, there, it's, a, it's, it's funny because for almost every mitzvah that we exempt women, there's an opinion in the Talmud that says that women are obligated. <clears throat> there's, a, there's an opinion in the Talmud that says women are obligated in tzitzit. <laughs> There's an opinion in the Talmud that says women are obligated, obligated in Tfilin. There's an opinion in the Talmud that says women are obligated in Sukkah. There's not one that says Lulav and Etrog, I don't think, but almost every mitzvah, there's at least one opinion. So you see that it wasn't like something that they, everyone thought was so clear and obvious that women had to be exempt from it. It was something that was a matter of discussion where those exact lines were going to be drawn in terms of what they were exempt from. It really related to is... Is tefillin a mitzvah to say shazman grama or not? Is tzitzit a mitzvah to say shazman grama or not? Some people say that, that tzitzit applies at night too. Some people say tefillin applies at night. Oh, then women would be obligated then. Some people say that because it says, Kol basukot, that every citizen of Israel has to sit in Sukkot, that means that you have, a person lives with their family. They don't live alone. So you're, you know, everyone should be obligated. So everyone's together in the Sukkot. So, you know, there were different opinions about that too. It wasn't like such a cut and dry thing, but this is what the halacha ended up Concluding in the end. Do you think every person should like follow just one 
Postak when it comes to halakha, or is it okay if you learn something here, you learn something there, and they contradict a little bit to do the one? Not that's more convenient for you, but the one that <coughs> makes more sense to you. Because it's confusing sometimes. You it's okay to, yeah. There's no rule. There's no such rule that you have to follow one rabbi. Okay? You shouldn't follow things that are actually contradictory to each other. You know? But you could follow one... You can follow uh, a different rabbis and different things based upon what, you know, your circumstances or what makes sense to you or what works for you. There's no concept that you have to have one rabbi. I don't know where people got that idea. There is an idea that you're not supposed to shop around, ask a rabbi. The rabbi said no. You're like, well, I don't really like that, so I'm going to ask this rabbi. He also said no. I'm going to ask another rabbi. He said yes, I like that rabbi. <laughs> you're not supposed to do that. And once you ask somebody and they give you an answer, you're supposed to follow it. But it doesn't say that you have to ask the same rabbi every single time. <clears throat> the classic example is like, let's say, you know, one of the examples that, they, that is often cited, I should say, is let's say mincha. When did the time of Mincha end? Some people you say you could say Mincha all the way until set sunset. Some, then one rabbi in the Gemara says, no, only until what's called Plag Mincha, which is like an hour and 15 minutes before that or an hour and a half before that. And so it says whoever does according to either way is okay. But, the, but don't do according to both of them, meaning like you can't just say, well, I'm going to say Mincha and Arvit in the same time and say that they both count because when I said Mincha, I was following that rabbi and then when I was following Arvit, I was following a different rabbi. You know? So that type of playing around, most, even though there are some opinions that even say that would hypothetically be okay, but because it's only rabbinic, filah, it could be lenient, but, but the fact is that in general, that kind of thing, taking totally contradictory ideas and, 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 and keeping them together wouldn't be good. But if you got an answer about one thing in one area from one rabbi and you got an answer on another subject from another rabbi and they're not contradicting each other, they're just in different areas, so then there's nothing wrong with that. You're saying the same question? No, meaning you asked one rabbi about something about kashrut and he told you blah, 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 blah. And then you asked a different rabbi something about Shabbat and he told you such and such. Now, even though Rabbi A might disagree with the answer about Shabbat that you got from Rabbi B... That's okay. Those two things don't relate to each other. You're, you hear the same question addressed by two different rabbis. Even if you're not the one who asks. Like in one class, you heard one rabbi say this. In another class, you heard other rabbi say that. On the same question, same topic. Mm-hmm. So like, what do you do? How do you know like, who do I follow? Well, there's no guarantee that, you know, there's not going to be like a voice from heaven that tells you which one to follow. The one you should follow the one that you trust the most or the one that you think makes the most sense. There's nothing more you can do than that. You're not going to be able to have like a guarantee that there's going to be a voice from heaven telling you what the answer is. Uh, we don't have like uh, that kind of benefit of that kind of divine intervention today. Um, but, you know, if you're just choosing it because you like it better because it's more convenient, that's probably not the best basis. If it makes more sense or you think that rabbi knows more or, you know, he makes a better argument or he brings sources and the other one just kind of says something off the cuff. So then go with the one that actually you think is probably better and, and, and makes more sense, not just with the one that you like better. Because whichever rabbi tells you it's okay, you're always going to like them better, you know, because it's, because it's easier. So it's not a, it's not a good rule, rule to go by, you know. Okay? Thank you. Thank you for coming.
And uh, all right, I'll see.